like to invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 17, please. The Gospel of John, chapter 17. Most, I think most years, uh, when we turn into the fall, I've taken uh, at least a short window of time to zero in on uh, our mission as a church. Uh, main uh, reason is it's easy for, for life to drift, uh, for us to lose sight of things. And I think it's important to uh, regularly remind ourselves of what the church uh, is called to be and do. And usually what I do is like right very beginning of it is just sort of uh, remind us of the whole thing. And then I like to zero in for a little bit on one part of it. So I'll just remind you quickly of the whole thing. Right, our church exists to honor God by making and maturing disciples who together are becoming like Jesus Christ. So there is a purpose to honor God and a process by which we fulfill that, making and maturing disciples, and that should produce Christ-likeness individually and congregationally, that we would all be conformed to Christ as believers, but also, as Ephesians 4 talks about, that the whole body grows up into him. So it's not just a personal thing, it's actually the, the body of believers, which is to reflect the character of Christ. And so lots of times, as I've said uh, many times over the years, uh, churches, the longer churches exist, the more uh, potential there is um, for, for uh, subset kinds of reasons to start to become the thing that people are attached to the church for, right? And um, we could list a ton of them. I mean, some some people start to be on the friends and family program, right? I go to church because my friends go there or my family goes there. And so church exists for that connection with their friends and family, or they want church to be for their friends and family, right? Or it might be some, some subset ministry. That is, what really matters to an individual or a group of people is a certain kind of ministry be done, and that's the benchmark of the church. And if you have any change of things, then, then people take off from one church to go to the other church because they want to be a part of that program because the church is a program to them and, and they measure the health of a church by that. Or, or um, I mean, you could just fill in. For nowadays, it seems like there's a lot of folks that are turning church into a, uh, a uh, social activism kind of platform or a political arm. So we're rallying people to preserve the American way of life or to accomplish some agenda. And, and if a church doesn't do that, then then people aren't happy about it. So they, they go to some other church, which will have the, you know, the patriotic rally every week. Or uh, you can just fill in the blank, right? And um, if you feel better about it, think of what somebody else might think, right? But if we're honest about it, we might stop and ask ourselves, how do we actually evaluate the health of a church in terms of what Jesus commissioned us to do, right? Are we laser focused on the mission that Jesus gave us? Because he was pretty clear about it, right? When he was leaving, he said, go, make disciples, 
baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. So he said that 2,000 years ago. The age has not ended, so it's still our responsibility. And the thing that will matter to Jesus is whether or not we took his word seriously enough to do it. Right? I mean, I've, I've uh, used this illustration, but it's simple to me, right? If you, if you say you were getting a job assignment or something and you're going to be overseas for a year and you put the guardianship of your home and property into somebody's hands and, and made detailed instructions about what you wanted them to do, and, and in fact, uh, had certain work that needed to be done on it to complete the process. And you were, took the time to write it out, put it before them. You come back in a year and, and half the list is not done. And the half that is done is actually done differently than you left the instructions. And if you said to that person, Hey, what's going on? Why didn't you get this done? And why did you do it that way? And they said, Well, you know, we really just thought you would like this better. We, we just sort of felt like this was the best way to do it. I imagine you wouldn't be happy. You'd probably go, like, why do you think I wrote that all down? I mean, I gave you detailed instructions about exactly what I wanted you to do. You shouldn't have guessed what I wanted. You should have actually read what I wanted, listened to what I wanted. Friends, Jesus took the time to write it down. He didn't say, hey, I'm going away for a couple thousand years. You guys figure out what to do. Do something to make me happy. I don't care what it is. You just figure it out. No, he said, here's my instructions for you. Here's what the church is supposed to be. Here's what the church is supposed to do. And we're supposed to listen and do what he told us to do. And I would suggest to you, it doesn't take long looking across the landscape of churches to think that it must not be the word of God that's controlling the choices. I mean, there, there's no doubt going to be some variety based on where a church is located, what era it lives in, all that kind of stuff. There's going to be some some uh, reflection of that. But there's not going to be radically opposed ideas that all come from the same mandate. Right? It, it really would just be like, you know, if we're trying to be the local church in... East Africa will look like the local church in East Africa, or if we're in Eastern Europe or Eastern Asia or Eastern United States, we'll look like where we are and we'll try to live out faithfully the word of God, but we won't be doing radically different things. We won't have radically different purposes. We'll actually have the same purpose no matter where we are on planet Earth and no matter when we are, because nothing has changed since Jesus left and said, go do this. 
nothing's changed about his mandate for us. And our obligation is to embrace that, to build our lives and build our congregation around the mission and purpose of Jesus Christ, because the church exists for him, not for me, not for you, right? It's his church. It's his body. We are his sheep. We are God's flock. None of us actually hold the position of claiming that the church is ours and must do what we want it to do. We are the followers of Jesus Christ, and we need to follow. Right? And I think, um, to, to step outside of my field, probably of experience, I haven't played an instrument in probably 50 years, um, I used to play the guitar. I know that might surprise you because occasionally I'll do a good air guitar, but played played the guitar. But you know when you watch an orchestra get ready, they'll start to sound a note so the people will tune themselves with that note. Because if all the instruments are not in tune, it's going to be a mess. Right? And and so the point is, here's here's the tuner. We need to know that God's word is setting the the tone for our church, that we are all aligned with it. And so I think it's good for us to be reminded of that. So we exist to honor God by making and maturing disciples who together are becoming like Jesus Christ or Christ-likeness. And that's actually the part that I want to zero in on, uh, Lord willing, for at least a, a couple of weeks, probably three. When we talk about Christ-likeness, we rightly often talk about it in terms of character, right? Sanctification and godliness. And, and that's completely appropriate. For instance, Romans 8 says that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, right? So... So we are to be ultimately conformed to the very image of Christ. And in fact, sanctification, progressive sanctification is us looking into the word and seeing the glory of the Lord and being transformed into that image from glory to glory. But I think sometimes we can, we can almost turn it into just sort of like a, um, an abstract kind of a concept or just an issue of, of maybe godliness and holiness and separated from the actual way in which we conduct our life. And, and if we thought deeply about it, we'd know we can't pull those apart because we don't live in a bubble, right? We, we, we live in real life. And, and if we're conformed to the character of Christ, it will translate into a certain kind of conduct and behavior. But, but when we talk about that conduct, I think it's important sometimes for us to sort of like step back and, and realize the scriptures actually address that. For instance, listen to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6. Right? It, it says uh, in that scripture that we, uh, the one who says he abides in him, that is Jesus, 
The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Or to say it more casually, it would be something like this. If you say you abide in him, then you should live like Jesus did. I mean, it's your life should be lived like Jesus lived his. That, that he actually set a pattern for us. Uh, that we are to imitate that pattern shouldn't surprise us, right? Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. There are certain hallmarks of the life of Jesus that should be characteristic of how we live. And a part of what I'm hoping to do is get us to not sort of have this, uh, this wall between our pursuit of Christ's likeness and, and what that looks like in our daily living. Because it might be easy to do, and lots of times we do. It's like, well, okay, that means I get up, read my Bible, pray, go to church. I do spiritual things, but, you know, then I, I, I get dressed, head to work, and I just work. Or I go about my tasks or my job or my family or whatever it is, and it's almost like we just took off our, our Christ-like hat and just like I'm living real life now. And, and practically the piety of this rings hollow if it doesn't actually translate into that. That we're actually trying to live like Jesus in every aspect of our lives, live like he did. And that's the pattern I think the scriptures would call us to. Now, clearly, uh, the details of his life are going to be different in terms of some of the specifics, right? I mean, you know, you wouldn't really go, you know, so how did Jesus use the internet, right? Or, Or what kind of, you know, thing like that. But what you're talking about, the principles, though, should touch down into our lives so that the overarching approach of the Lord to his life is the same approach we have, right? He lived a certain way, and we need to live that way, too. And that's what I'd like to dig in a little bit this morning. Um, Look at John chapter 17 and verse 4. John chapter 17 and verse 4. This, just let me set backdrop, this is the Lord's uh, praying the night of his betrayal. He's already done the uh, farewell discourse to the disciples in 14, 15, and 16. He's going to pray for them, and then it's going to go right into the betrayal, trial, and execution. So look at what Jesus says in verse 4 in this prayer. I have glorified you, he's talking to his father, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. I noticed the the overarching purpose of Jesus, I glorified you on the earth, and then he tells us how he glorified his father, having accomplished 
the work which you've given me to do. Or some of you might have a footnote there that says, by accomplishing the work which you have given me to do. So there is a connection point in the mind of Jesus Christ between what could be an abstract concept of glorifying God and a concrete expression of it by accomplishing the work that he had been given to do by the Father. So he honored his Father by doing what the Father wanted him to do. Right, And that's such an important, I mean, it's obvious, but such an important truth. I mean, you could, you could say it this way, just like I said about our church, we have a mission and we're to honor God by making and maturing disciples. Why do I say that? Because that's the work that Jesus gave us to do. Right? The church was entrusted with the task of the Great Commission. If we want to honor God, we have to account for that task. Right? Someday, if, if I treat it as a collective, our church gives an account of itself to Jesus Christ, and our answer hopefully would be what Jesus said here. We have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave us to do. Because that's the pattern. Look, look over to verse 18. You can see Jesus describing this kind of pattern in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And the focus here is the commissioning of Jesus. Right? The Father sent the Son to do the will of the Father And now the son has sent his disciples to do his will, to carry it out. He's going to say, this is a description in verse 18 in chapter 20 and 21. It turns into a command. As the father sent me, so send I you. Right? I was commissioned by the father to to do his will. I am now commissioning you to, to go do mine. And, and the issue of glorifying him would be whether or not we've accomplished the work which he gave us to do. I mean, Jesus lived a life that we, we might use a phrase in our day, a life that was on mission. It was on target. It was on purpose. Now, obviously, there are some differences between us and Jesus. That perhaps an understatement, but but let's just, let's just focus on those differences for a moment and then, then think about some of the similarities. Right, when it comes to knowing the Father's will, Jesus of Nazareth could know it with more specificity than you and I do. Because right, he's described here in this book of John as a prophet who has the word of God. Right, so God was speaking to him and telling him exactly what he was to do. So so there's a specificity to Jesus knowing exactly what the Father wanted at any given time, and therefore being able to do it. You and I don't have that kind of specificity um, simply because we don't bear that same kind of relationship as he's the Messiah. Please be clear, what I'm trying to note here is the God-man. 
Obviously, as the eternal son of God, there is no gap between son and father knowledge and all of that. But we're talking about the one who took to himself human nature and is described, for instance, in the book of Luke as growing in knowledge and wisdom, stature and favor with God and men. I mean, Jesus, Jesus would have gone to kindergarten just like everybody else. Right, he'd have, he'd, have, he'd have been being taught, he'd learn. He was asking questions, for instance, in the temple when he was 12 of the teachers. Right? But then there is this messianic reality at his baptism where he's anointed with the Holy Spirit and he has a mantle of being a prophet of God. And so he would have some specificity that you and I won't have. So I concede that. Right. Obviously, also different is he did it perfectly. And you and I never would. We can't. Right. He had perfect alignment with the will of his father and perfect execution of every element of it. Okay. So let's just get that off the table and I'll come back to it later. But I'm not talking about the fact that you and I can perfectly line up with the Father's will and perfectly execute it like Jesus could. But let's not miss the fact that the scriptures are clear that he also did live in his earthly life as we are supposed to. Right? That, that in fact, he was studying the scriptures to understand them and see the ramifications of them for his life. And, and in fact, in general terms, here's a great insight into the thinking of Jesus. Remember when at 12, he's in the temple and his family leaves and he's asking all these questions and they're, all of a sudden they realize, I mean, this is, this is relief for parents, right? I mean, here's the parents of the Lord and they lost him for three days. All right, so sometimes when your child's running around the church and you don't know exactly where they are, remember it wasn't three days. It better not be three days, all right? All right, but, but they come back and they say, why did you do this to us? Don't you know we've been frantically looking for you? We've been filled with anxiety? And Jesus says, didn't you understand that I should be about? And, and there's some ambiguity in the translation, literally about the affairs of my father, that's why I think, I think probably the oldest trans, older translations, right? About my father's business. A lot of newer translations, do you know, it must be in my father's house. But essentially Jesus is saying, didn't you realize that the thing that would matter to me more than anything else would be this matter of my father's business or affairs or house? Right? I mean, that, that was the thing that was the controlling, overarching rule of life for him. What mattered to God mattered to him. And that's supposed to be the same thing with us. I think you, you have to be careful again when you're taught, you're talking about the humanity of Jesus, but it seems clear that Jesus lived his life by faith. He was the author and perfecter of faith. When he was being when he was being attacked, the scriptures say he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. That's in First Peter chapter 2. Just two chapters later, you know what Peter says we're supposed to do? Entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. Jesus was the example for us of living by faith, 
trusting his father for everything that he needed, trusting his father with his ultimate assessment. And you and I are supposed to live the same way. He lived in the power of the Spirit. His life and ministry was conducted in the power of the Spirit. And that's what you and I are supposed to live as well. All right, so, so here's the thing. We don't want to put such a wall between the life of Jesus that we only focus on the different. Well, yeah, of course he knew God's will. Of course he did God's will. I mean, he's the son of God. Because if we tilt it all that way, then we're probably just trying to let ourselves off the hook a bit about the fact that God has told us a lot about his will. I mean, there's all kinds of things revealed for me in the scripture that tell me what his will is, and therefore I'm supposed to live inside the boundaries of what his word has said. His will should be the control center of my life as revealed in scripture. And in fact, there's other ways to narrow it in also so that my life has some sense of purpose and mission. And I think we need to think that way. Because just like as a congregation, we are accountable before God. I believe every one of us as an individual, if we know Christ, have an accountability before God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, right? To examine the things that we've done in the body, whether good or bad. And I take that bad as fruitless or fruitful. Because it's not a judgment of our sin with regard to salvation. That judgment has been settled at the cross. But I am to be a servant of Christ, and my service could be unprofitable, right? It could be, it could be wood, hay, and stubble, 1 Corinthians 3 says. Or it could be gold, silver, and precious stones. There's going to be an accounting in, in that regard. Romans chapter 14 and verse 12 says, we'll all give an account of ourselves to God. Remember, that's in the context of disagreements among believers. So you can't just take that text and isolate it from Christian living to, well, that's just judgment of unbelievers. No, he's writing to the church at Rome and how they would come to make decisions about living under the lordship of Christ. Because that's what verses five through nine are about if you do something, you need to do it as to the Lord. Because he is the Lord of all the living and the dead. And that's why he died. So you're going to give an account to the Lord for how you live your life and the choices that you make. Can they be things that you can do as to the Lord and can do in good conscience? You're going to give an accounting to God of that. Right, so what you do in your life actually matters. There's some standard by which God will assess your faithfulness to him. First Peter 4.10 talks about us having received the gifts. Each of us have received the gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Okay, think about it when he puts the word good before the word stewards, does that not necessarily imply that if you don't 
employ your gift in serving one another, your stewardship is less than good? Right? There's some kind of evaluation happening. Something for which you will be accountable before the Lord. So here's, so let me make sure I'm bringing you with me, all right? We're to be like Christ. Christ lived his life with a mission. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. If we're going to be like Christ, then we have to want in our heart and bring our lives in line with that one day when we stand before the Lord, we can say, I have glorified you upon the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. And I've been trying to show you that we're going to give that account. And in fact, we've been given work to do. There is not a believer in this room who is purposeless or missionless or workless. Right? If, if you step back from the example of Christ and go, well, that's just him. Right? I'm just supposed to live my life. It's not like, it's not like I have some grand purpose or some grand mission or some specific responsibilities before God that I need to fulfill. I'm just sort of living. And if I don't violate the Bible, everything's good. Right, You're living your life potentially just by going, there's a bunch of do's and don'ts about the Christian life. And if I just make certain that I'm conscientious about certain do's and don'ts, then it's all going to be good. And you're not thinking that God redeemed you through his son so that you are, we saw this just two months ago, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God beforehand ordained that you should walk in them. There is something that Jesus wants you to do for him. Your life has a purpose. It has a mission. And it should be the ambition of your heart, the aim of your life to be able to one day when you stand before the Lord who died for you to say, I have accomplished the work. I glorified you by fulfilling the work you gave me to do. That clearly you would say it like Paul. I am what I am by the grace of God. Right? It's not going to be a praise session for you. It's going to be an offering to you of, from you to the Lord where you cast that before his feet and you gladly say, right? It was the grace of God in me. But, but if we turn the grace of God into an excuse for not fulfilling our responsibilities, we are abusing grace not using it. We're not supposed to receive the grace of God in vain, but actually respond to it. 
Right? So, so we must think about this. And how is it, how is it that you would come to know what is the work that God wants you to do? Well, again, I mean, there's, this is like stuff for all of us. I can't tell you specifically what you are uh, entrusted with to do, but I think I could guide you in the thinking about it. Okay, so let me, let me just walk you through this way. I think the first thing you have to do is do a reality check. And I'm saying it this way because our world has lost sight of this, right? You are a human. So go look at what the Bible says about being human. What does God say humans are to do to glorify him? You can start right there. All right, I am a male human. If you're not a male human, you're a female human. Right? What does the Bible say about that? And, and I'm starting right there because we live in a world that thinks you can just sort of decide all that stuff yourself. If you want to be a furry, you can be a furry. Right? Or if you want to be something other than what you are biologically, you can be that. And that's why I said it's a reality check. Right? That's, that's an imaginary world if you can be something other than what you actually are. And, and God has made you. And when he made you, he brought certain responsibilities with that. Are we defining those by the word of God? Second layer of it would be roles and responsibilities, right? You, you have been entrusted by God's sovereign providence with certain roles, and those bring responsibilities. And if you want to know what your work is, understand what those roles are and what God says about how they're responsibly, responsibly fulfilled. Right? I'll just use myself as an illustration. Right? I'm a, I'm a son. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a pastor. I'm a professor. I'm a citizen. I'm a neighbor. Right? You know, the Bible says about all those things, things that I need to know. And if I want to fulfill the work he's given me to do, then I need to understand what the Bible says about that, right? That role brings responsibilities outlined by God as to his will, and I should find out what those are and set my heart to do them, right? That's, that's the, the pattern it is. Uh, each of those have biblically defined responsibilities. So the call on me, if I know Christ, is to submit to his lordship and pursue faithfulness in fulfilling my God-given duties. And, and again, I'd suggest to you that our culture bristles against that because it doesn't like the concept of submission to Christ's lordship and the sense of duty that implies obligation is binding. And our culture doesn't want to be bound. It wants autonomy. It wants freedom. It wants to be able to define ourselves in ways that free us from things. 
And that's not the pattern of Scripture. And our, man, I'm, I'm serious, you know, preachers can get hobby horses, right? And I know this one re- runs the risk of a hobby horse for me. All right, so bear with me, though, because I think you're hearing, you know, 120 hours of the opposite. You live in a world that's pumping this nonsense into your head, right? The whole concept of identity in our day has, it's just the latest version of of psychological theories that have captured the imagination of the modern world so that finding my identity has become the, you know, the more technical way of saying I'm trying to find myself or figure out who I am or, or all that kind of stuff. Right? And, and what it's done is at least in two ways, I think it's, it's flawed our thinking. One is it's sort of an obsession with self-determination. Right? I, I can choose my identity because I am in control. And if you doubt me, just go read the literature. Okay, because here's what it basically is. The difference between you being healthy or not healthy is whether or not you let other people tell you what your identity is or whether you come to those conclusions by yourself. Right, and here's what I'm saying. I'd say to you, right, Jesus has the right to tell me who I am. I don't, I don't get to make it up. I don't, I mean, I'm, I, I listed in their husband. Let's suppose I decide one day, you know, I just don't want to, I don't want to do that anymore. It's threatening my sense of identity and I'm just going to abandon that. Do I get to do that? Well, our culture would say, yeah, because you've got to be authentic. You've got to be true to yourself. And the problem is, if you understand the scriptures, our self is a pretty messed up, Thing to be true to, because you don't know which <laughs> which curve on the road yourself is going to take you. Is it your selfish, sinful desires? Is if you're a believer, you've got uh, good desires prompted by God. Right? The issue is God declares these things to me in His Word, and I don't have ultimate self determination. Right. Yeah. You know, someone comes up and says, well, I just, I want to identify as something other than what I have been. They're saying that they can create rather than be conformed to the revelation of God, both in nature and in the word. And it's fundamentally flawed in that regard. But it's also, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a mess. It's a confusing kind of concept about self-identification, right? Find your identity is really, if you've been around long enough, you know what they're really saying is not find out who you are, find out what gives you self-worth or self-esteem, right? It's not actually like, who am I? It is what makes me have a good sense of myself, How do I want to view myself so that I have a good sense of self-worth or self-esteem? Where am I going to put sort of the eggs in the basket of me having a 
feeling of value. And, and there, there's the part of it that's right is if your whole value is based on the opinions of other people, then you're always going to be subject to the tyranny of those people. At that point, I agree completely. If you're going to talk self-worth or self-esteem, then it needs to be decided in terms of God, right? Because God actually is the one who sets the value system. So I agree there. But the minute you start to go, don't find your identity in this thing or do find your identity in this other thing, it really starts to become terribly confusing. And I think at least contrary to biblical things, right? I'll just, uh, you know, a few years ago, there's a big book going around for pastors. It's supposed to be the greatest thing written by a, a Christian psychologist who's in ministry, right? And I think he's more of a psychologist than he is minister. But basically, a sub-theme of the book was, well, don't find your identity in being a pastor, right? Find your identity in Jesus Christ. And I'll be honest with you, I read that and I'm going like, what does that even mean? I mean, if, if he means find your value or worth by virtue of your relationship to Jesus, I'm with him. But, but if you're going to say, I shouldn't, I introduce, because here's the way you'll get this, right? So let me introduce you. I'm Dave. I'm a pastor. No, no, you're not a pastor. That's what you do. I want to know who you are. And I'm like, give me a break. Have you not read the scriptures? Didn't Paul go, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul, a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Whoa, time out, Paul. That's not who you are. That's just what you're doing. I really want to know who you are. Paul would look at you like, what are you talking about? Can you see how psychological categories have sort of been stuffed on top of our understanding of things? I, I am a husband. I don't just do husbandry. Never do husbandry. <laughs> I don't do husbanding, right? I, I am a pastor. I am a father. Those, those, that's who I am. To say that's not who I am is just like counter reality. Those are things that are true of me. They actually affect how I should think about myself and how I should live. To, to play the kind of games that people play with it is actually just to make people drop into some kind of fog about it because they're always questioning, well, well, so am I really this or I'm really that? I don't know who I am. Right? I mean, someday I won't be a pastor. And you know what? I won't be a pastor. Like, what's the problem? Am I also going to go, I just don't know who I am anymore. I've got a whole list of things I am. That's just one of them. I mean, the only time that list is going to expire is when I do, and I won't have to worry about it. Some of them may be subject to change, right? I could be a pastor today, and in 20 years, I might not be a pastor. Or I could be, you know, you could be married, and then in God's providence, your spouse dies, and so you're not married. 
And you might wrestle with how do I live now that I'm in this new situation? Right? But that's, that's, that's life. There was a time when my wife and I didn't have children. Then we had children in our home and now we don't have children in our home. Right? That's, that's just part of life. And at each stage, I have to go, so what roles has God given me and what responsibilities come with those roles? If my, if I think my life only has worth or value because I have one of those roles, that's the problem. Right? If I stand here and go, my life only has worth because I'm a pastor, then I've, I've completely misunderstood everything about it. Right, so I'm, I'm fine if people want to challenge that. The fact that people live for the approval of other people, they live for their own self-esteem or self-worth, all that, go after that. But to somehow eliminate the fact that God has given me certain roles, some of which I had no choice about, right? I was born into a family. I didn't get to go, hey, I'd like to be a son. Right? That's just providence. Some of you are widows or widowers. You didn't make that choice. You're you're like, I didn't want to be in this role, but here you are. Right? I mean, that's there's part of it that's providence. There's part of it that we make choices. But the reality of it is wherever we find ourselves, there are roles that God has given to us to play as servants of Christ and responsibilities that come with them. And that's what we will be held accountable for. I mean, do you, do you have it clearly in your head, right? I mean, every man in this room, if you're married, do you understand what the mission of a husband is? Because it matters to Jesus. Wife, do you understand what the purpose of a wife is? And are you yielding to what the scriptures say about it? Or are you listening to the culture around you? Men and women tell you what kind of identity you want to create. Right? Because if you're flying by the seat of your pants, making it up as you go along, then you're going you're gonna to have wood hand stubble at the judgment seat. Right? God has told you, men, what you're to do as a husband. He's told you, wives, what your role is. Dads, do you know what the mission of a dad is? According to the scriptures? Mom, do you know what the mission of a mom is? According to the scriptures? Right, and I could just start walking through all of those and say, hey, do you have it clear in your head what God says this role is supposed to do. And are you committed to it with the kind of commitment that Jesus had? Because that's really what we're talking about if we want to talk about Christ-likeness. Go to chapter 4 of this same book, Gospel of John, chapter 4. Look at 434. This is the passage about the Samaritan woman. The disciples have gone to get lunch. He has the conversation with the Samaritan woman. She's gone to the city to bring out the Samaritans. 
Disciples come back and say, hey, you want something to eat? And and verse 32, he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Then look at the statement in verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You see that accomplish his work? 17.4, I have glorified you upon the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Here's the mindset of Jesus. He's in a scenario where he's hungry. I mean, he, they, they just dispatched them to go get lunch. But when it comes down to it, he says, hey, here's my real food. The thing that sustains my life and satisfies the things that matter most. It is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Right? So, so here's a parallel, I think, to what Jesus does in Matthew chapter four. Remember, Satan tempts him to turn the stones into bread. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He was saying, listen, Doing what God wants to do is really what sustains life. Here he says it very clearly. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. There is a kind of life which is greater than physical life. And it actually takes priority over physical life. The life that Jesus is talking about, which is sustained by doing the will of God, is the most important kind of life. It's life in relationship to God. So Jesus could say, listen, this matters more to me than sustaining my life. And you might go, well, that's, that's a little extreme. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Acts 20, he's being told if he goes back to Jerusalem, he's going to have trouble. And he says, he knows, you know, the Spirit testifies that, but... I do not consider my life as account of anything so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received. You know what Paul's saying here? Keeping myself alive isn't the thing that matters. Doing what God gave me to do is what matters, right? I don't count my life as important. I count doing the thing I was entrusted to do as most important. That's why he could say about his prison, imprisonment in Philippians chapter one, that even though there were people who were trying to add affliction to him and he's in prison, but he's thanking God because it causes the spread of the gospel. And then he says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed And in this, I rejoice. Because you know what mattered more to Paul than his life and his comfort? The mission of Jesus Christ. That's why a few verses later, he says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The mindset of the Lord was captured, had captured the mindset of the apostle Paul. So, so here's, we come into it and go, all right, so, so what's reality about who I am? What are my roles and responsibilities? And I think we could add, what resources has God given me? All right, because the scriptures are clear. Listen to it. To whom 
much is given, much shall be required. Right? That's Jesus. To whom much has been given, much shall be required. Right? So, so God entrusts us with things so that we might use them for his glory. And 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is very clear that the standard for our evaluation is not what we don't have, but actually what we do have. Right? And we like to live our world thinking, well, if I had this, if I had that, then I'd be able to do this. You know, I mean, if I had, if I had a great husband, I'd be a great wife. If I had a great wife, I'd be a great husband. If I had, you know, whatever. And, and we're always trying to excuse away our responsibility by what we don't have. But the standard in scripture is what we actually do have, because that's really what matters. If we don't have a lot, God's not going to hold us to a standard of having a lot. If we do have a lot, he's going to evaluate us according to the standard. It's, it's, it's simply that. What has God entrusted into your hands? What, what do you have for which you have been given a stewardship? And are you going to be faithful in the stewardship of that? Are you going to be a good steward of it? And that's really at the heart of this, that, that our mindset has to be Christ. Okay, the, so the thing that matters to me more than anything else is doing the will of him who sent me and accomplishing his work. So what's the task that Jesus has entrusted to you? Go to chapter 12. Because here's the motivation we need to, to do this. And again, I think it's the motivation that Christ exhibits for us. John chapter 12, uh, just so you can see the context, there are some, some Greeks, verse 20, who were going up to the feast and they want to see Jesus. And then Philip and Andrew come to Jesus and tell him that. Then picking up Jesus' answer in verse 23. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Let me just try and capture, I think, what are the heart of this in terms of what we're talking about. Jesus, you can see it in the text, right? My soul has become troubled. Again, I think sometimes we, we don't uh, give fair reading to the New Testament presentation of the Son of God and the Son of Man. Like we, we think like this was no big deal for Jesus to go to the cross. The incarnation was no problem. I mean, it's, this is all... I mean, he's God. He just skated his way through it, no problem. 
But the things that Jesus was going to suffer were real. I mean, his soul was troubled about the experience that lies ahead of him. In fact, it describes him in the garden uh, being uh, pressed underneath that. Hebrews talks about him praying with loud crying and tears to be rescued from death. This this was like no no walk in the park for Jesus. This was going to be brutally difficult. I would suggest more difficult than anything any of us in this room will ever experience. Okay, and I know... That's not a, you know, the way to talk in our day because we're supposed to be heavy empathy and all that stuff. But, but here's what I'm saying to you. Jesus Christ bearing the weight of humanity's sin was a depth to which none of us will ever go. Okay, he bore these things and it was enormously troubling to him. And, and let me just try and get you to see why I'm saying that. Because I'm going, you've got roles. And you go, you don't understand what that role is. I mean, you don't understand the, the, the thing you're telling me I've, get, I've been given the task of. That's just crushing me. I can't do that. I, I just, you know, I've got to take care of myself. I've got to protect myself. I've got to, I've got to, I, I've got to, I've got to uh, abandon this responsibility or else it will crush me. Okay, so here's what I'm saying to you. Christ's likeness would be Jesus looked right into the face of the most difficult thing he could. And you know what he said? What shall I say? Look at the words in verse 27. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Right? Do do I stay here now? God, time out. I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. No, he said, this this was God's purpose for me. This is the mission. This is the assignment that I have from my father. And my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. I want to glorify him on the earth, having accomplished the work he gave me. And this is the work. So so look what he says in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Right, there's, there's motivation, number one is that if we if we have our heart aligned with the glory of God then in the midst of whatever the assignment is from God if we're hooked to the glory of God it will sustain us through it and we need to see that that's really the challenge and that's where our culture is fighting against a biblical frame of reference because our culture sees not as our primary responsibility to honor God, but our primary responsibility to be fulfilled or to be happy or to be satisfied or to be um, express myself, authentic, true to myself. Right? It's essentially putting us at the center. And so if anything threatens us, 
anything threatens us, it's by that fact to be excluded from our life. But that's not the path of Jesus. Right? Did you see what he said about the grain of wheat falling in the ground and dying, bearing fruit? And then he says, if my servants are going to be mine, they're going to follow me. Jesus is saying, my hours come. I'm going to be the grain that goes into the ground and bears fruit. And my servants are to follow me. Because if they follow me, then they will be with me. Because that's the second motivation the Father's presence, not just his glory. Look at what he says in 25 and 26. Because he makes a clear contrast between our life, loving our life or hating our life. And notice the context. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. So the key there of understanding is those phrase, in this world, and to life eternal. Jesus is anchoring this in eternal realities. Because if you, in the midst of the struggle, decide to abandon the roles and responsibilities that God has given to you, it really is that you're loving your life in this world. Right? You're, You're saying... This is too hard. This is too difficult. This is not who I want to be. This is not what I want to do. I mean, I, I've got these roles, but I don't want these roles. So I'm going to discard these roles for the sake of my greater happiness or my greater joy or my, my greater well-being. Right? You're actually loving your life in this world when you abandon the will of God If you're willing to say the thing that matters most is not my life in this world, but eternal life, then you're willing to follow Jesus. And look what he says about those who follow Jesus in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Right? So, so again, It comes down to whose glory matters most, whose approval matters most. Not others, but even not self. God. God. That, That it's following Christ in that way. I mean, two true followers of Jesus Christ have embraced the truth that this world is not ultimate, so they don't build their lives around what it provides. You're not looking for sustenance and satisfaction ultimately in things which will not provide them. They can bring a measure of joy, but they also bring a measure of grief. Because this world's broken, right? There's there's nothing in this world that brings you joy that can't also bring you grief. That's just the reality of it. Every, Every person in this room knows that. So if you've built your life around it, you've put your life in a very precarious position. 
But if you've built your life around what God's will for you is to carry out his purposes, to honor him, you actually have put your life in the right position so that you see now as serving eternity and trusting God with the outcome of it. And that's what God calls us to. Reality is only one person has fulfilled this mission perfectly. And that mission centered on his providing salvation for all who will trust in him. And and this morning, that's our only hope in life and death. When Jesus had a troubled soul, he clung to the glory of his father and who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Through death, he was going to bring many sons to glory because he perfectly obeyed the father's will. My imperfect obedience is ultimately not the decider of my salvation. I am not in any way saying, so, hey, you got to do this to be saved. I'm saying, look what Jesus did to save you. And if he did that for you, won't you live for him? Won't he matter more to you than finding the escape hatch from your responsibilities? Won't he matter more to you than neglecting them to chase after distractions that this world provides? If he did this for us, how can we do less than give him our best and live for him completely? Right, That's the call on it. And since Christ died for us, we live for him because we have a mission to do his will. I can't tell you exactly what it is for you. I can tell you the boundaries, right? The, the edge of your Bible and the edge of your Bible, and you need to live within that. And in the course of your life, God is going to put things into your life that bring responsibilities, and you are to take that word, apply them to it, and then pour your life out in the obedience of Christ. Right? It's not complex. It's hard, but it's not complex. Pretty simple. We need to do the will of God. He saved us to bring him glory by accomplishing his work. And his work is not done. You know, I know that. You're still here and he's not. Right? If he was done with you, you'd be with him. If he was done with all of us, we would have heard the trumpet. Until those things are true, there's a job for us to do. It might be, it might be mundane, rough stuff of life. It might be just showing up to do what God wants you to do tomorrow and not worrying about the next day because sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. Right? But he wants you to do something for him and you need to see it as for him to give it meaning and purpose. Your life is not on a hamster wheel. It's been ordained by the God of heaven and earth. Christ died on the cross to make you his servant. What an awesome privilege it is. Let's live it. Let's get on target. Not let the thing drift off. 
The details and pathways of our lives have eternal significance and they should be what sustains us and gives us our greatest satisfaction in doing God's will and accomplishing his work because Christ did it for us. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to see our lives as having great eternal significance because of the work of Christ, that you saved us to make us like him, but also that we might serve him. And we can't squeeze his lordship into the corners of our lives. He's Lord over all. Every facet of our lives comes with an obligation to live for the Lord, to do what we do for him with all our might. So Lord, help us personally and congregationally to have a life with a mission that follows our Savior whose mission provided salvation for us. And may we be a conduit of your grace to every other life that we touch because we follow Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.